everybody. Welcome to season three of the French Village podcast. Wait a minute, ben, Sarah. I've got great news. We've got season three? I've got great news, Ben. <laughs> We've been renewed. You know what the greatest thing was? Is how many people on Twitter and by email tagged the Bulwark to yeah. be like, Bulwark, you must renew this show. Uh, Can I just uh, uh, I, I take the the a point of personal privilege to explain my joke from last uh, <laughs> week. Um, so for those of you who don't understand this, Sarah actually is the bulwark. And so when I joked that, you know, if they would renew us for season three, um, that's like, uh, you know, having Rupert Murdoch on a Fox news show and say, um, uh, and you know, saying uh, if Rupert Murdoch were hosting the Fox News show, him joking, well, will we get renewed by Fox News for for another season? Uh, uh, there was never a chance, just like there is never a chance that uh, Danielle Larche will uh, will not be called Mr. Mayor. Um, uh, there is no chance that the bulwark will not renew Sarah's uh, uh, show, no matter how much JVL may whine about it. I mean, the thing is, I'm not the bulwark. There's a great many people who make up the bulwark who do much. I just, I do have broad discretionary powers as to whether or not this podcast continues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will say that. And so, so good news though, I've decided that we should, we should keep it up. So we are back. And so is so are most of the characters that we were left thinking uh, might be gone forever uh, at the end of season two. Yeah. So the first question I I I don't ask for spoilers, Sarah, but we need an explanation, and I want to know if we ever get one of why is Hortense alive. So I actually, I have the same question. Even having watched the show, I can't remember whether at some point, I'm sure they reference it, but whether they explain, you know, what one presumes is she's discovered and revived uh, in some way. I mean, she seemed good and dead. (laughs) Uh, And the only good Hortense is a dead Hortense. Well, uh I mean, it's it's a it's a tough sentence from you. It's maybe tough but fair. Um, I would say uh, I would say though, as as far as deaths go, the the getting shot in the back and left in a field twitching seems to me to be the more likely scenario in which there's not an explanation for coming back. Hey, he was at least twitching. She was, there was no evidence of twitching on Hortense's part. There was, on on the part of uh, uh, Schwartz, there was some indication that he wasn't dead yet. Um, and he might still have a little bit of fight in him. That was at least foreshadowed. Hortense had no pulse. She's uh, She'd been lying there for a while. Um, I mean, she was dead, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. I, I will say the show, I've mentioned this before, the show gets a ton of things right. I think its historical accuracy is mostly quite precise on the drama pieces. I, I have some complaints often. Uh, I di- In a show where the entire um, 
you know, universe offers you a great deal to be anxious about, to leave multiple characters with the expectation of of their lives having ended at the end of a season, only to sort of revive them without a ton of explanation, um, is to me is a, a bit of a cheap move. I remember being annoyed about this uh, when I watched it the first time. Now, of course, see, I'm happy to see Hortense, um, and I'm happy to see Schwartz. Like, I, I, I remember at the end of season two being like, are they going to, like, bring in a whole new cast? Like, what's going to happen if all these people are gone? Um, and so, you know, and I'm pretty sure that when I was watching this the first time, I was just like, click, next. Let's see what's, well, I'm not waiting any period of time to understand what's going on here. Um, but, but, but no, I mean, it's, and it's not just Schwartz and Hortense. Sada is back. Uh, we have, let's see, who else? Morhange is back um, in, in, in better health. Although De Cavern uh, is not, which yes. is uh, uh, a matter of some puzzlement. Yes. Um, uh, and they do look, there is some new casty elements here. Certain minor characters in previous episodes, particularly uh, uh, Cremieux, seems to be a much more significant character in this third season than he has been before. Um, His relationship with his wife, who was really a walk-on character uh, before, she is a more significant character now as well. Um, And actually... Um, uh, Berriot, who in the previous seasons is very much a foil, uh, for the relationship between, uh, uh, what's her name and Kurt, um, uh, is now a significant character in his own right for reasons having, uh, nothing to do with his, uh, all of a sudden, very pregnant uh, uh, madame. I just want to point out that uh, no pregnancy has ever gone from zero to 60 the way... Uh, the Why am I forgetting uh, her name? Lucienne. She, Lucienne, thank you. The way Lucienne's has... She, she, you know, she sort of zips into the second trimester without, you know, showing uh, a, an ounce of additional weight... And then season three starts and she's kind of eight months pregnant. Um, uh, The passage of time can only sort of explain that. Well, I was going to say, I do think there is a passage of time. I do think time has passed between season two and season three. And I can't remember. At some point they give you something to demarcate it. But it it is is, is July of of 1942 now. Yeah, I think, but I think like at least three months has passed. I think it's when Danielle mentions he hasn't heard from Marcel in three yes. months. So, and I just want to, I do want to say this broadly uh, as we begin to talk about season three, that uh, without without spoiling anything, I think even though, even with you only having seen the first couple of episodes or for anybody who's following along in time, season three is tough. It's probably the toughest of all the seasons and I was not dreading it exactly, but um, I'm not uh, I, knowing more about what's coming is not uh, makes me 
not dreaded exactly, but it's just it's just like it's a tough one. Um, and 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 I think you can see why that would be as the 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 season kicks off with um, you know chaos around a train pulling in of. Uh, I, I think they say foreign Jews, um, and and I I don't quite know what that means because they don't seem to be of the same. Like I I can't they don't all seem to be from the same place because um, they're speaking different languages and some are Polish. Uh, but but it this is where to me it's the scene one of the scenes that is most familiar from World War II Holocaust storytelling where you see a train come in and uh it's sort of early days of roundups no one knows where they're going um they still has seem to have an expectation of being treated with some dignity and uh don't have they're more confused and they are scared but they are not they are not certain that they're in mortal peril um which we know because we know just from the time what's what like trains of people mean and so um so i just that is this is this is a season where i feel like it's the it's it's where you it's where it intersects with a lot of what you've seen in holocaust things and it's it it, it's just brace yourself for a tough season um i guess is what i'm telling you yeah so a few few historical notes to get us started. Um, the first is uh, on that point about foreign Jews. Um, the fr- the French Jewish community at this point in history uh, had two major elements. One is uh, the uh, indigenous French. Jewish community that had been there for a very long time, um, you know, m- many, many hundreds of years, or even at this point, a thousand years. Um, it is, uh, um, uh, uh, and the, the second element, and those like, uh, and those are typified in the show by people like uh, Morhange, um, who are, you know, native french speaking uh they are um uh quite integrated into french society uh and then um starting in the 20s the the, the early 20s there is a large scale migration of eastern european jews um including into france um uh, there's is also uh, lots of people from Eastern Europe are migrating, you know, uh, starting in the I don't know, 1870s and 1880s. And this is, of course, accounts for much of American Jewry is is migration in, you know, the first half of the, the last couple decades and first half of the 20th century, this migration of Eastern European Jews. But a lot of people didn't get further than France. And this accelerates. Uh, so you have uh, Czech Jews like Sarah Meyer, uh, as well as Polish Jews uh, and a, a bunch of Russian Jews. Uh, and this accelerates uh, 
as the Nazis start conquering uh, territories. First, a bunch of German Jews come in who are refugees like uh, 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 Annalise Berg, the uh, the spouse of of uh, Cremieux, who is Austrian, right? So the uh, Austrians, the Anschluss, the uh, annexation of Austria by the Nazis is in 1936. A lot of Austrian Jews leave at that point. In fact, the policy of the Nazis was to expropriate all of their property and force them out. Uh, the policy was to make Austria what was called Judenrein, which is uh, free of Jews. Um, and so you end up with this very large population of refugees that uh, are from just all wherever the Germans are occupying and people flee to what was thought of as the biggest land power uh, in Europe, France, um, which, of course, uh, then falls cataclysmically in 1940. And so all of these Jews, both the native French Jews and the Jews from all over the rest of Eastern Europe, mostly Eastern Europe, but some from Holland as well, some from uh, Germany itself, are concentrated in France when it falls. Um, the French state, as the uh, show accurately portrays, immediately throws them under the bus. And so the we've talked about the edict of... of uh, October 1940 before, one of the first pieces of anti-Semitic legislation they pass is denaturalizes a huge number of French Jews like Sarah Meyer, who are, you know, French citizens, but recent French citizens. They all get denaturalized. And it also subjects them to arrest, um, as well as these refugees. Um, and so the initial phase of the Holocaust in France, and frankly, the most successful phase from the German point of view, related to these foreign Jews, what are called foreign Jews in the show, which are actually a lot of them aren't foreign, but they are, uh, they are either refugees or recent naturalizees, recently naturalized people, or uh, in the case of Morhange, people who just get mixed up with them. Uh, and so this is, again, quite accurate. And these people survived the war at a much, much lower rate than uh, the French, the longer time French Jews, whom the Vichy state was at least a little bit more protective of. Um, all right, a second note um, the date here is important. It is uh, useful to think of Vichy as having taken place in two phases. One is the 1940 to 1942 phase where uh, it was not a wholly co-opted, you know, puppet state of Nazi Germany. It was really partly that and partly the remnants of the prior French state. Um, in 1942, the mask really gets ripped off. And the reason is deportation of Jews, as well as deportation of French labor. Um, so 
uh, the show does not depict this yet, but the um, the Germans were running out of workers, um, and so they basically in, conscripted Vichy to send large numbers of French men and some women uh, to be laborers in Germany, and Vichy's inability to prevent i think i don't know that much about this history but i think it was like hundreds of thousands of people being basically conscripted to be slave laborers in germany uh really pulled the mask off of who they really were and so this is the period of that transition where you know the french gendarme are basically doing the nazis work for them yeah, and um, it's it's interesting you bring that up. I do think we get there. Um, that conscription of the French men does does become relevant, uh, not this season, but, but later on. Um, but in this season, even in these first two episodes, you get a real sense of, of where it's going. So first, uh, the train comes in and unloads uh, the refugees, and Dr. Larche is trying to get um, Berio to take them and house them in the school because Servier, who I want to spend a little bit of time talking about, um, Servier just thinks, stick them in the train station holding room and whatever. We'll wait for the next train and it can be days and I don't really care. Um, and Dr. Larcher is pushing as hard as he can. So this presents a real conundrum for Berio because he wants to be helpful. He obviously wants to, you know, he wants to take care of people. He's that's why he's part of the resistance, but he also has a printing press in the basement of his school that he definitely doesn't want people to find. And bringing all of these refugees into his school and having to house them is going to put that under a microscope. And so he is panicked. Larche is panicked. And ultimately, they decide, OK, they're going to take everyone to the school. Um, but they don't have uh, and I think the show kind of does a good job of depicting this in a very practical way where, like, the plumbing is not set up for this many people. They don't have beds for people. It is clear they do not have food for these people. You know, food is already scarce. Um, and 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 there is the – in the first and second episode, you get both the, the refugees coming and then you see the actual edict come down that we are going to start roundups. Um, and – I'll say, knowing history uh, the in the top-line way that, that I would say I do, um, as well as if you've consumed, um, you know, sort of enough <clears throat> stories or depictions of the Holocaust, you certainly understand what the roundups were and looked like. But there is something about knowing this town knowing the police officers who are doing the rounding up, seeing the discussions of people who, you know, live in the same town as this goes on. Um, one of the things that, that I thought it did very well in the show that was pretty interesting is, especially with Krimi's wife, there's this, he keeps saying, and this goes to your point on the his historical side about, they felt like they were protected because he was pure French, and he kept saying, you are married to a Frenchman, um, and that that was going to be sort of enough to protect her. That and I think a combination of class, too, where they are very wealthy. Uh, he's French. He still is able to – he's being stripped of his status and yet maintains enough of it that he feels some safety. Uh, and yet he's just starting to turn 
the corner of I'm not positive it's safe and wants to get her out of town. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. So, again, we return to this point that we know that this is the Holocaust. We know how this story ends. They don't. Um, And, you know, they think France is under temporary occupation and they've got to wait out this bad situation. And, you know, we know that the Cremuse of the world had a better chance of surviving the war than the Sarah Myers of the world war of the world did, but it wasn't, it wasn't that great, you know, and uh, that we also know that there were, that things that people thought would be restraints didn't turn out to be restraints, you know, that like, we know that a train of sealed cattle cars means people are going to uh, to Auschwitz or to, you know, Majdanek or, you know, one of the extermination camps. They don't know that, right? These are not, uh, they think that they are being oppressed, deported, maybe sent to, you know, the, the, the euphemism was resettlement in the East. Like their imaginations are not, focused on the sort of exterminationist qualities of 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 the nazis uh that's something that you know in this very period of time the eastern european jews as the nazis are rolling over poland and and particularly ukraine and 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 belarus and and russia are you know being uh, shot in fields in very very large numbers, you know, and this is this is the one of the most intense periods of the Holocaust. But they don't know this, um, and you know, they're at the end of the day, Cremieux is a very wealthy um, French industrialist, um, and he's still of a mind that he can kind of buy himself out of anything. Um, And it's only just starting to dawn on some of them that that's wrong. And, you know, there's this very powerful moment where uh, his wife is brought into the camp and she says to Morhange, it must be a mistake. I'm married to a Frenchman, and Morhange responds, and I'm pure French, you know, which is basically, don't kid yourself, it's not a mistake. Um, And, you know, those class lines, those ethnic lines and nationality lines within the Jewish community are really breaking down, uh, and the, uh, the salient distinction is quickly becoming, you know, are you Jewish or does somebody think you are? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that scene. Um, but I And I want to just spend just a half a minute on uh, Mrs. Morhange, who is another character who's back, um, although she has a plausible reason for being back. We know that she has gone uh, to France, to Paris, uh, and that she has gotten her operation. 
Uh, we learn during a conversation between her and Marchetti uh, that something hasn't worked out with Day Caverne. We don't know whether that's true or whether that's just what she's telling Marchetti. Um, but Marchetti, she, she says, you know, Day Caverne was right about you. You, you want to be cruel to people to distract from how lonely you are. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, telling him that truth, you're sort of not sure which way Marchetti's going to go on her. Um, but, but hitting him with some of those truth bombs and, uh, end up, you know, he, he sends her, uh, to, to be with, to, to the school. Um, illegally. Yeah, but but for not wearing her star, which actually is another, I would say, um, piece of the the something that that gets brought in where you're used to seeing the stars on people in in a lot of movies about the Holocaust, but it's the first time a star shows up on the show, mm-hmm. um, and that and that you see that it was an obligatory thing that was illegal for her, and she kind of talks about how she got caught between. She had to choose between breaking curfew and breaking the law that way or not having her star because she needed to, I don't know, get home and change. I, I couldn't quite follow. But I, I just – one of the things about Morhange being back uh, – so I love Mrs. Morhange. She is one of my favorite characters. Uh, this is her season. Um, that, and, and you you know, she's, she's clearly – you can see that her role is shaping up to be a, a big one because she gets – She's sort of taking a leadership role here with the group. She's trying to figure out how to get everybody fed. She's comfortable at the school because she used to teach there. She's comfortable with kids, and there's a lot of children. Um, and and critically, she is, from a French-facing point of view, she's a person with, you know, she's native French-speaking, and she's a person with a weird kind of status because she used to be somebody respectable until she was purged. And so, you know, just as Berriot is a figure of some respect in the town by dint of being the, the principal of the school, she is kind of formerly of that role. So she's presentable, um, but she can also, though she doesn't speak Yiddish or, or, uh, uh, or German, she's comfortable enough in the Jewish community that she can kind of go from faction to faction of the detained population, and she can kind of be their spokeswoman. Yeah, and one, I, I don't know if, if this was clear to you or not, but one of the families that's detained is a family we've met before. Um, so there is uh, the the the... There are a couple of, of refugees that they kind of give a plot line. And at one point, there is a, a clearly wealthy person who packed a lot of food. So everybody is starving in this. Nobody can get them food. The townspeople you know, are having trouble getting it from the townspeople. Um, and so, you know, people haven't eaten in days and everyone's starting to get a little, everyone's starting to get pretty upset about it. Um, and so this, but, but this, this, what I, again, think is a wealthy person has his like sausages and bread kind of laid out for his family and they're eating and, um, he gets in a fight with another man, uh, and, and Morhanch is also telling him like, put that away. What are you doing? There's children here starving. Um, but the guy that, that picks the fight with the rich guy is the father of the boy who was shot. This is the family that they were trying to move across, that was trying to be moved early on by Marie uh, across the border. 
and he is there now with his wife and his daughter uh, because the boy was shot when um, Marie's husband abandoned them and they get brought in with Sarah. Uh, so it, it's they are they have popped back up again and are are worth noting as characters. Um, I think there's a couple other people that pop back up in the season that now I'm sort of forgetting. I don't um, think I had noticed that he was the same guy. It is. Uh, it is because he is. He's. He's. He's a slightly bigger character. He's a small scare character in the scheme of things, but he has a. He has his own kind of arc, um, especially in in this season. Uh, and actually, and well, anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, this is how I learned to avoid spoilers. Um, so I also want to talk about Servier. So this taking people to school. So Servier. Up until this point, I would say we have looked at Servier as a bureaucrat that is kind of slimy, classist, racist in that, you know, foreign Jews he has no use for, but seems to have some appreciation for the idea of like, well, if somebody's French, that's different. Um, and, you know, he, he but he has a he's the one who's always arguing the crappier side to Daniel. Um, but. You know, I don't know that I would have put him in the bucket of somebody operating with active malice. Gosh, right? I've, I've loathed him from the beginning. He's the guy who, you know, when Danielle uh, comes up with a plan to feed people, um, uh, thinks it seems a little too commun- communitarian uh, and... I mean, he's on the wrong side of every issue. He's on he's on the way too enthusiastic side of, you know, we'll we'll name the hostages for you to shoot. And by the way, throw in the foreign guy because uh, though he's innocent, you know, he's not French. Um, Servier is pretty loathsome. He is loathsome, but my my he's more he's the stand-in for bureaucracy. Right. And so it's not he is he is a, a almost a, a, a gross and an amoral person that is part of a system and he looks out for himself. But I would say I, I get the point I'm trying to make is that in the I feel like in the third season, he kind of tips over into a place that is even more odious. That's um, fair. Because I think he goes from being kind of like. I'm doing this for my career and, you know, I like to hang out with the high society to I literally do not care what happens to these people. Um, I don't want them to be my problem. Get them out of here. Like if the kids starve, they starve. You know, like he just and he has a couple of incredibly and and he, on the roundups too. I would say that there was something about Servier in the earlier two episodes where he would get this look on his face when someone when it was handed down to him this idea of like go do ter- a terrible thing. He seemed to wince and then come and make peace with it often. But I would say that now he's in a space of. Yeah, we're doing this thing. Well, and he's also um, in in the spirit of a, uh, you know, as you say, the face of bureaucracy. Um, you know, the fundamental choice at the beginning of the show, at the beginning of the season, is do you let these people, this some dozens of people, uh, languish in a train station waiting room under the guard of Nazi soldiers, or do you move them to 
um, uh, to the school, which is a, a larger space. It's got a you know it's got bathrooms, although not enough, and uh, it's got some cots. And uh, it would be the responsibility of the gendarme, which is French, um, who aren't you know murderous. Uh, 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 Nazis. Um, And he is all about leaving them in the train station because that way the Nazis are responsible rather than the French state. The, The conditions under which he can assume custody of them and give them more humane conditions is the, is the, is that the French be responsible for it. And so he is opposed to that because he doesn't want to be responsible for these people. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. Um, I just, I remember, I remember watching this the first time and moving to a different place with Servier uh, in terms of where I was putting him on my, like, the the line of morality. Uh, and he was, I would say he was, like, he was certainly on the negative side of Daniel, um, you know, as where, where Hortense and, um, and over, over further where Mueller live, uh, but, but not so far. And I, he moves further down that scale for me in this but, but let's talk about that scale for a minute, okay. because here's what none of them is talking about. You know, Danielle, who's painted sort of heroically because he insists that Berio take them. He's uh, he's a um, you know, he wants to find food. Uh, he's not talking about how to get them out of there. He's not arguing with the Germans. What the fuck are you doing? Like, where are you taking these people? These pe- people deserve the protection of the French state. Um, he's not doing that. And Berio, who comes to, you know, pass Morhange a, you know, some raisin bread over the razor wire that has been set up al- around his school. Uh, he's, you know, he's the most attractive of the bunch of them in this episode. He's not doing anything to get her out of there. Um, in fact, he's more concerned about how to protect his printing press than he is about how to get the printing press out of there than how to get people out of there. Um, and, you know, the the degree of paralysis that even the good guys have on the big picture is so total that we end up morally giving them credit for very what are really very small things, um, and you know what what's ultimately the difference between Larcher and Servier is he wants them to be more comfortable on their way to Auschwitz than Servier does. Nobody's talking about the big picture, like you know we we've got you know a few dozen people here who are heading who are being kidnapped and sent to some unknown but very bad... I mean, nobody thinks they're, you know, going to a a good outcome here, whatever they think the outcome is. Um, And there's absolutely no... There's not even discussion about what's going to happen to these people. Uh, And so I, I think it's actually an interesting 
portrait of how if you're brutal enough, you can make people fight over the terms of the brutality, not the fact of the brutality. When I say, when I was pitching you on watching this show, one of the things that I would say is it's a meditation on complicity. Uh, and what I mean by that is it is not a show about good guys and bad guys. It is a show that is trying to, I think, put people on a scale of complicity from everywhere from active, uh, you know, menacing participant to a person who is doing making trying who's doing small things in the moment that make them look like they're doing the right thing that are ultimately still a hundred percent participating in what is happening. And until you get the characters, which I think is, is, is been gestating, but is not fully formed yet. The, the people who are, um, that's why Barrio starts to sort of blossom. I think, uh, is because he starts to move in the direction of doing something to push back. And, and I think that, that Cremieux, uh, who is also emerging as a more important character, uh, you know, is is helping to drive and, and sort of Marie, who is another character who who has this internal moral code that says we need to do things to oppose this. We need to be actively participating. And I think they have been there have been fewer of them. And as they find each other um, and that part starts to grow, I think um, that is one of the things that for me makes the show tolerable as you go. Um, because there are people who are making, again, little judgments at the time that build toward something that looks like genuine resistance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you have, um, and I think what the show ultimately does really well, despite its its plot flaws and uh, plot negligence on certain points is portray how daily life in these circumstances requires a, a, a million tiny judgments about how you're going to engage with that reality that puts you on that scale somewhere that you actually can't avoid being on it. There's a very nice scene where Larche is trying to collect food for the people in the, in the school. And he's literally walking around town as mayor with the wheel, a wheelbarrow asking people to give food. And he, he has this, interaction with this one townsman in which the guy is incredulous that he would be collecting food for foreign Jews. He's like, I don't have enough food for my family. Um, And, you know, in that moment, that guy becomes on the complicity scale, right? Are you going to, are you going to help the mayor in some small act of resistance or are you going to think very narrowly 
Um, and everybody was confronted with those questions. And one of the things the show does nicely is show how different people didn't always make the same decisions um, about how to behave. And there's a good example of that with Marchetti, where for, you know, personal revenge reasons, he is, uh, he sends uh, 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 Morhange to this, um, you know, who is not a foreign Jew to the school. But later in the pair of episodes, he's confronted with these two uh, refuge, German refugees um, who are posing as Belgian Flemish refugees, German Jewish refugees who are posing as Belgian Flemish refugees. And he pretty quickly figures out that they're Jews and he has a kind of weird comic flirtation with the younger of them, who's the daughter, um, menaces her, makes clear he's figured it out, and then tells her her papers are in order and sends her home. Um, you know, so even somebody as beastly as Marchetti, and he is, you know, as we've talked about before, the show's kind of want to, wannabe uh, Muller, he's, uh, he's really become an awful person. He's capable of being sufficiently amused by uh, by this woman that he keeps her secret for her. Yeah. And, um, that, this is, sorry, this is the character I was, I was thinking of in terms of a new character that gets introduced that, that, that matters, uh, going forward. Um, and this Marchetti having a feeling, a bit of a connection to this woman, but let me ask you about her. Just, I can't remember her name off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I don't either, but, even though she becomes a more major character, but what, where would you put oh, her age? Is her name? De, Dewitt is the is her last name, yeah. which uh, is 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 her fake last name. I think it's Dewitten Wittenberg is yeah. the is the um, the name she has changed. But but where would you put her age? Oh well, since you got me to make a wildly wrong uh, uh, early in the show age estimate at um, about what's her name um, Hortense, um, but we actually know her age because she is born in 1906, um, according to her interview with um, uh, with uh, with with Marchetti, Marchetti. when they're going over her. Yeah. So therefore, she is uh, thirty six. Does she look thirty six? This is not a good question. I, I, you know, asking me how to is, age right, how women right. look. Right. I'm just not, not going to do it. It's not fair to you, but I'm going to go. I'm going to go into this just for one second because it's actually something that sort of drives me crazy about the show is how all over people's ages are. So like. First of all, I already had my antenna up for Daniel and Hortense. Uh, then now there's Daniel and Sarah and, you know, kisses on the forehead. Um, and and clearly, clearly they're giving you some underlying tension sure. between them, um, which and I'm, I'm me still rooting for them. I think. You, come on, man. I mean, in the broad scale of the morality of the show, that's they're the least of the problems. Oh, no, but come I'm, on. I, Danielle, Danielle is 
you know, seriously long suffering. If, if there's ever been anybody I've watched in any show who deserves to have an affair, it is Danielle Larche. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, Sarah, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of huge age differences, but um, these people need each other. You know, uh, I'm, I'm totally ready to ship them. Okay. Well, I just find, I find the Marchetti in this woman to be uh, it, it just, I don't know. I, the, 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 the show is, is, is playing at a, a real chemistry here that would cause Marchetti to behave in a different way. And I just like, don't buy it. Uh, Mar- well, part of that's that Marchetti looks so young. He's so baby-faced. And... I mean, I would put Marchetti at 31, maybe. Uh, and I just think that she's 45. Um, and okay, like, well. <laughs> um, so... I'm just saying that I don't think that this show is always like on top of its how it ages people. All right, that's that's fair. Uh, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, I think you know you, you have to suspend your disbelief about something, and in some shows, it's that all people, all animals, can breathe on all planets, and in this one, it's that <laughs> it's that you know they they don't uh, the the age of the humans is not always plausible relative to the age of the characters. Yeah, these are th- these are things that only I care about, I'm sure. Uh, but anyway, uh, what else do we need to talk about in these episodes that are important? Well, let's talk a bit about uh, the printing press, because this is a oh, significant yeah. subplot. They've got to get the printing press out of the place um, uh, within three hours, because they're... The, gendarme want to use the basement it's actually not clear to me what they want to use the basement for um but they want to use the basement where the printing press is hidden and so uh 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 Berriot and with the help of Lucien who turns out to know a thing or two about how to unfreeze bolts using a, a kind of acid that I have never heard of before um they uh, spirit the printing press into the back of a truck and um, get the gendarme to do the heavy lifting for them, which is an inspired little thing. And uh, at the end of the episode, uh, they are driving the printing press away, having missed the opportunity to... They don't know that uh, Cremieux's wife has been... Uh, taken yet um but they get stopped by a not at a nazi checkpoint and uh they make a run for it and cremieux gets shot in the leg as they're running away uh, and so it is uh, uh, a pretty taut ending and i think that at this point the nazis have cremieux's wife or the, the gendarme do they've shot him i think in the leg and they've got the printing press, so I think we're in a we're in a kind of an ugly place for for our our burgeoning resistance heroes. Yeah, I gotta say, um, 
it's one of the things that I love uh, in the time span that we've shifted is how Barrio has gotten has had sort of a physical transformation between seasons. He is grayer and yet it is making him actually look like less of a nerd. Um, like he always had this like slicked down that made him look just when he was pursuing Lucienne that I always felt like made him look just like slightly reptilian or I don't know, I, but but unappealing in a way that he now uh, and when he's when he's being pressed the way he's doing, right? He's trying to to work the printing press. He's he's he clearly likes that work, um, but he is being put in in tough positions uh, to make choices where he's really on the line, and he's sort of sweaty, and his his jackets are kind of hanging off, and uh, and he starts to take on that everyman hero sheen um, that. Uh, is a is is sort of him growing into to a different role in the show, and you see that. Yeah, so he's um, I, I I think the growth of this character is really interesting, and I want to do the totally unfair um, uh, analogy to modern times with with Monsieur Berriot. Um He reminds me a little bit of Liz Cheney, so. Uh, in the first few episodes, Berio is uh, kind of sleazy. Uh, he seems to be leering with respect to Lucien. He seems to be, um, you know, abusing. I mean, in a way that's, I suppose, a modern gloss on on workplace stuff. But you know, running a school where you're hitting on the teachers is not a not best practices, probably even then. Um, and he's, uh, seems he's toasting in the basement to our collaboration, right? He's, uh, he seems pretty unappealing early on. And then it turns out he's the only honorable person in town with respect to Lucienne. He actually, uh, uh, is much more appealing than her father about her pregnancy. And uh, he genuinely doesn't seem to mind that she's pregnant with somebody else's child. He, uh, so his attitude toward her becomes much less uh, gross over, over as you get to know him. He's shown courage in public settings, both with respect to Madame Schwartz and with respect to uh, the general political climate. And he is uh, actually doing things now with Cremieux, who is um, a, you know, he's genuinely putting himself in danger with respect to the printing presses. And he's doing it in a way that is pretty selfless. and so I, I have to say my, I, I, I repent my earlier distaste for Berio. Um, and again, I have this, you know, to project this ridiculously into modern times, think about the way we talk about Liz Cheney. You know, this is somebody who, um, you know, lots of people have lots of reason to dislike. She's been unappealing on a lot of issues from, you know, from the kind of most 
from the most uh, kind of belligerent sort of, you know, neoconservatism, uh, interventionism to, uh, you know, kind of very un, uh, unappealing views of sort of LGBT issues, right? She's somebody who lots of people have, have lots of reason to dislike, uh, and yet the crisis of the moment brings out a side of that is genuinely principled, genuinely courageous, and uh, and it doesn't make you forget the other things that you might disagree with her or dislike her about, but it does separate her from lots of other people who you may worry have, you know, that there is no core to which they are true. There is no democratic core to which they would, you know, on the biggest issues, do they, are they fundamentally in the right place? And I think Berio is somebody who the show spent a lot of time setting up how, you know, on lots of non-biggest issues, there's reason to regard him as sort of an apparatchik sleazeball uh, and, oh, and that he starts out the show by showing up to take Morhange's job, right? Um, he's also the only one who bothers to show up and give her a loaf of bread, um, you know? And so, like, on lots of small things, he's prepared to be a sleazeball. But on the bigger the thing, the more attractive he becomes. And I do think we've seen some characters like that in our day, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I talked a lot about this in the first couple of episodes about being like, I don't remember feeling this way about Barrio. And I was like, I was like pretty hard on him. And I think part of it is that, you know, when I burned through these seasons before, you get to see the arc happen quickly. And um, he obviously is trending in a in a better direction. Um, and so you you land in a different place on him, ultimately. Um than, than where the show starts out. Um, and so, yeah, big big ups for Barrio in this episode. I will just say on your point about modern corollaries to the narrative, I, when I watched the show the first time, it wasn't in the thick of child separation exactly, but there was we were talking, and we're still talking about refugees and how many we're willing to take as the United States and um, and about the camps at the border and the way that people are being treated. Um, I would say we were sort of in the thick of that in the Trump years, though, when when I was watching the show. And um, I I think we should be prepared that there, we're going to end up having quite a few things to talk about in terms of how many parallels there are this season um, to what how we've been dealing with immigration and how we've been thinking about refugees in this country. So one other character we should talk about is Schwartz, um, who um, shows up, as you pointed out, alive, not uh, like Hortense, seemingly unscathed. Uh, he's got an injury from which he's recovering. Um, he... Uh, he still hates his wife with the fire of a thousand burning suns, but she has stepped in and is running the business and, of course, effectively turned it over to daddy. 
which is, uh, you know, that woman has, uh, has, uh, a, 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 undying loyalty to her father, which her husband really dislikes. Um, and she has a new lawyer who is um, a, uh, uh, um, who is, reveals himself quickly to be a very bad guy. Um, and he does this in a fashion that those who are not familiar with French history um, uh, might not pick up on, which is that at this meeting, this is a guy who's sort of represents the Chamber of Commerce, and at this meeting where they're deciding what to do with with respect to feeding these uh, Jewish refugees or Jewish detainees, um, uh, you know, basically raises the subject of who's going to pay for it. And Larche, you know, tries to argue that, you know, there are ways they could do it with, you know, municipal forward financing. And he ends the meeting by saying the Jews have, you know, owe us since Dreyfus. Um, And this is a reference to the Dreyfus affair, which is a, uh, without going into the whole history of it is, I mean, it's a set of events from the 1890s uh, that loom very large over subsequent French history. Um, uh, Anne Applebaum has written about the about it as the sort of fundamental division in Europe, uh, uh, even down to this day, that the the Europe French culture was political culture was kind of divided between the what are called the Dreyfusards, which are the people who believed that Alfred Dreyfus, this this French officer who was accused of spying um, for the Germans, were, were innocent, and people who believed he were he was guilty or believed it didn't matter if he was guilty because he was Jewish. Um, and so when this lawyer working for Janine, who is herself quite the anti-Semite, reveals himself as somebody who in 1942 is still thinking about Alfred Dreyfus and the perfidy of, of Jews with respect to Dreyfus. That axis, no pun intended, between, between Janine, who is horrible, uh, and this horrible lawyer who re- reveals himself very quickly as such um, at the expense of um, of uh, her husband, who is infirm and uh, making out with the help, um, I think is setting up uh, uh, yucky stuff to come. Yeah, um, you know... The- and just to kind of go back to where we started, it's funny. We we get we get most of our main characters back, with the exception of Day Cavern at the end of season two. And then they add a bunch of characters in now who become pretty important characters. And so I'm like remembering so like meeting Chassange Chassange for the first time. Isn't it Chassagne? Chass- I don't know. I think it's Chassagne, but I'm not sure. Okay. Well, um, 
why I can't hear the names and they all, I only read them. They only look phonetic to me when I like read them in the subtitles. Uh, whatever. This guy, uh, you know, it's the introduction of a new character, as is the woman that Marchetti, uh, the Jewish woman that Marchetti uh, lets go, um, as are um, some of the people who are being held in the school. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's interesting to see some of these people for the first time. Uh, as you note, uh, Chassange or Chassonier doesn't, doesn't, isn't, isn't a nice person. And to see the f- first scene uh, with him, I was like, ah, yes, you were revolting from the jump. Um, yeah, because he's arguing against feeding people in 1942 because Dreyfus. That's right. a, you know. Well, he's also after Larcher's job. Yes, they they do mention that. And Servier has another yucky moment. Servier is explaining to Larcher that he wants his job. um, And Larcher says, and do you support him? And Servier says, not at this time, basically, (laughs) Um, which is also a, you know, it's not what you want to hear as as. It must let's let's just say Liz Cheney must have had a lot of conversations like that. That's true. Although it also sets up a dynamic that I think we're familiar with, where you take the complicit humanist in a job trying to make the best of a bad situation versus the person who will replace them. Uh, and this is what you heard people argue in the Trump administration all the time about why they hung on and stayed despite atrocities is they were like well you can't even imagine who they were going to replace us with and you can feel we call yourself. that the cash patel effect the, exactly and and you feel that in the show with the sense of well daniel better stay right where he is and fight for that position because gosh knows he's he's way way better than this person i mean he's not leading the resistance but uh he'll take he'll make sure people get food and it will genuinely concern him right but again you come back to what the terms of the debate are Danielle Mm -hmm. will make sure people get food on their way to Auschwitz, and this other guy won't make sure they get food on their way to Auschwitz. Nobody's talking about stopping the trains. So I agree with that. I just want to just – I'm going to interject just a slight bit on Daniel's uh, behalf to say your point earlier about how people don't know where they're going – Daniel, too, does not know. He knows it ain't good. He knows knows it ain't good. He knows it ain't legal. He knows that that he knows to protect the people he cares about from it. He's hiding Sarah Meyer because he knows that it would be really bad for her if she were in that group. And he's collecting food for them. And he's not thinking about, can we bribe the gendarme to you know, to let some of them out, right? There's right. just a limit to what he's thinking about. I agree with you. He doesn't know they're all going to be murdered within days. Um, he doesn't know that, and you can't necessarily blame him for that. But the, he he definitely knows that the SS doesn't have good outcomes in mind for these people. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Uh, and we are going to, man, the, the, the complicity conversation is going to get much deeper in this season. So, Ben Wittes, thank you for coming back for season three. 
Um, Th- thank your bosses at the Bulwark for re-upping us, Sarah. Cause, they have great taste, I got to tell you. They yeah, have great no, taste in podcasts. It shows, shows admirable uh, tolerance for eccentricity. <laughs> and thank you to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week. And then... And until then, Edith, take us home. Nous, nous aimions bien tendrement. Hommes, femmes, tous les amants. Et puis un jour...